Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> All right, folks, welcome to another episode of the Elk Talk podcast. I am uh, excited for this one, and I think uh, a lot of a lot of you have been looking forward to this podcast as well. I uh, will get into the details here in just a minute, but uh, before we do, just want to make sure and recognize our sponsors. The Elk Talk podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and uh, Randy and I are huge advocates of being a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and supporting what they support, which is enhancing elk habitat and providing access for uh, elk and, and elk hunting. So uh, definitely support the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. You can learn more, you can join, you can become a member there. The $35 that you spend a year goes back on the ground and there are several projects uh, that you can check out in your area that the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is involved in. So rmef.org is the website there. Uh, before we get too much farther, though, I definitely want to introduce our guest today, which we've only had a couple guests on the podcast in the past. And uh, David Brinker is back with us here today for this episode. And David, you were on episode six, I believe. Yeah, that sounds about right. When we were at the Total Archery Challenge in Big Sky, Montana. So Thanks for uh, taking the time out in between elk hunting here to, to join me. Absolutely. I need a break. They're winning. <laughs> I, people don't understand, you know, they, they see, man, you're living the dream. You're hunting 20 days in September or whatever it is. And it's tiring. It's physically and mentally and emotionally taxing. And Yeah, it can, it can take its toll for sure. And I know everybody uh, I there is. Especially, you know, when you, I have three young kids. Yeah. And, uh. Trying to balance all that is a whole nother podcast we should do sometime. Totally. Yeah. And I think people right now are not feeling too sorry for us, but. We, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cry me a river. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, we'll go through our sponsors here real quickly and then we'll jump in because we have a pretty awesome story to, to tell about our time together during this elk season. But uh, the Elk Talk podcast, in addition to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, is sponsored by Sitka Gear and David, I think uh, you've got a little familiarity with Sitka gear. Is that right? A little, a little bit. Thousands and thousands of hours, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's a phenomenal company. I was I was part of that brand for eleven years, and um, I I 
My last day there was June 1st of this year, but I'm still still talk to those guys every day. And and uh, if I know them, they're going to continue to keep coming out with some amazing stuff. So totally, no, it's actually how you and I met. I think you were uh, fresh out of college, like days maybe out of college. I was probably still in college because I, I worked for Sitka for uh, about a ye- almost a year, just under a year um, while I was in college. So I was That's working right. remotely. Yep. In fact, my my first three or four months at Sitka was an internship. I got college credit for it. I Very bet people cool. are also feeling sorry for me for that. It's really <laughs> hard. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we. Uh, I don't remember what year we met. Two thousand seven, two thousand eight, something. When yeah. did you start there? Right there? Probably over the phone. Two thousand seven, but yep. uh, in person, two thousand eight. I would guess. Yep, I think that's when I came down pig hunting down there. That's right. When I, I is that the flight that I booked where you had to fly to four different airports to get there? I tell you what. So David has been in charge of a lot of travel that I've been associated with, and it seems like <laughs> going from Boise to Salt Lake City or to Bozeman or to San Francisco, you know, wherever it is, it should be a pretty direct flight. And somehow I end up going through Minneapolis and Chicago and then Tallahassee, and it's uh, oh man, I would scroll all the way down to an Expedia for the, the least convenient flights for Corey, just so I could hear him whine about it. <laughs> I think that was the only good part about you leaving Sitka is not have to worry about seeing the entire Corey, country. Do you mind laying over in London to come to Sacramento? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, no, Sitka Gear, awesome company, awesome gear. Randy and I have been uh, believers from the beginning and, and continue to be definitely innovators in uh, turning clothing into gear. Uh, another sponsor for us is Gerber Gear. And uh, Randy's been involved with Gerber forever. And uh, of course, everybody knows Gerber and the multi-tools and their knives and all of that and and how handy the products are in the field. Randy was sharing with me, and I actually don't have one, but I'm going to be getting one. They've got a a multi-tool that's got the socket function and you can interchange a whole bunch of different bits on it. So he's got that in in his toolkit in the field because it's got Allen bits that... Basically, instead of having an Allen wrench set, you can do all the adjustments on your bow and everything right there with the multi-tool from Gerber. So another great company that that we're super excited to have as a part of the the podcast and supporting what we do. Uh, Go Hunt and David, you're familiar with Go Hunt, I know. Love those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing product. Great guys and great company and and, uh, just a, a... I can't stress the value that comes from an insider membership. And right now, if you go to gohunt.com forward slash elk talk, you're going to go to a special landing page with a picture of Randy and I on it. And you're going to be able to sign up for a free 30 day trial to go hunt insider. And it's the full, full menu. There's nothing restricted. Uh, You get access to everything there for free for 30 days, which it's not a, seven day or a 24 hour trial, you get 30 days to get in there and that's, you'll, you'll fall in love. If you go in there, go to that, go to gohunt.com forward slash elk talk, uh, and just sign up for that free 30 day trial, browse around. You're going to be able to look at statistics as far as draw odds. You're going to be able to see, uh, basically you can filter down all the different criteria that you're looking for in a hunt. You can see hunts that you can purchase over the counter versus, you know, if you have points in a certain state, you can drill it down to success rates, to 
basically trophy quality. And, you know, that, that's kind of subjective, but if you're looking for an area that holds 300 plus bowls, um, you can put that as a, as a filter and, and sort it out and it'll basically show you the map and highlight the units that, that meet your criteria. So it's incredibly handy. There's all sorts of strategy articles and just a wealth of, of information. If you hunt out of state, especially you need to uh, check out Go Hunt. Uh, and then Onyx, Onyx Maps. I know uh, you and I have both looked at the uh, the app on mobile devices out in the field, and Onyx is an incredible. I'm not really sure what people did before it. That's. <laughs> I said the same thing the first time I got a GPS, which wasn't very long ago. I was way behind the curve on that, but yeah, I don't even I don't know where my GPS is anymore because with Onyx, you have everything you need in the field for navigation, for research, for finding the path for tracking where you've been everything it's it's pretty impressive yeah you can yeah i i i uh gave my gps to my dad and i just carry my iphone now yep download the maps that i need and and it's super handy and really easy that way i don't have two things in my pocket anymore exactly and you have your phone anyway because everybody has their phone with them now so yeah i'm taking pictures and videoing constantly on my phone so yep. I, I i keep it pretty handy and we'll talk about that more in a bit <laughs> not yeah, to tease anyone well but we'll, we'll get to that uh, <laughs> go to go to onyxmaps.com and use the promo code elk talk and you're going to save 20 dollars or 20 percent when you sign up for their uh their app membership their hunt membership there so that gets you uh the state of your choice uh, you can sign up for multi-states if you hunt multiple states and like david said you can download maps of specific areas up to 10 mile resolution and uh, have that with you offline in the field. So even if you're going in the back country and don't have access, those maps are downloaded. Everything that's turned on when you download it is turned on when you get to the back country. So uh, truly a, a valuable resource. And then our last sponsor is Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And uh, David, we had a chance to blow a few calls this season together and uh and you sounded amazing and i sounded like a dying dinosaur <laughs> well it, it didn't it had really nothing to do with the calls it had more to do with the skill behind the person blowing them and i was gonna say the quality of the calls didn't seem to change the uh the outcome of the call in so <laughs> no i actually in all seriousness uh um lo love love the, the calls that you brought with you i actually um hadn't hadn't used Rocky Mountain calls um, prior to you getting to Oregon this year, just because I'd always been, I'd always used Primos and I was kind of comfortable with them. And um, and I still like my Primos calls, but I, I started using the ones you left behind with me after you left in the last couple of weeks. It's been incredible. So I, that's awesome. Which one, yeah, uh, uh, which one are you liking? Uh, the green one? Yeah. The All Star. Yep. Yep. The green one is the best for me for some, and I can't really figure out why. Um, maybe you could maybe we, you could explain that to me in another podcast, but it just seems to fit my mouth better, and I can make better sounds with it. So yeah, it's it's definitely in the Elk 101 Signature Series lineup from Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. It's the most versatile. It's the the one that's made to to be an all star. It does everything. So cow call, bugles, big bugles, little cow calls, whatever you want to do, it it'll do it all. Yeah. So. And we've got a promo code for Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. If you go to their website at RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com and use the promo code ELKTALK, 
you're going to save 15% on all of your elk call purchases there. So with, uh, with that out of the way, uh, David, as we alluded to, we, we sat down at the total archery challenge here. What's it been two months ago? Yeah. Almost two uh, months ago. Late July. Yeah. And we talked about our plans to hunt Roosevelt elk together in Oregon Mm -hmm. and how excited I was because I'd never hunted Roosevelt elk before. And, and as the hunt got closer, we found out you were bailing on us and leaving us kind of high and dry for opening day. <laughs> no, we, uh, yeah, I had some unfortunate um, changes of plans that I had to attend to. So I missed, uh, I guess I missed the first, yeah, the first two hunts, right? Yeah, for, well, the, morning, the whole the first day and day. then uh, the next day as well, the morning, then I think you were at camp that oh, afternoon. Oh, right, right. I missed the first three hunts. You're yeah. right. Yeah, but yeah. the good news is, you left us in uh, very qualified hands, and it was an absolute blast to hunt with Brent and get to know him and his dad, Eric, uh, a little bit better. Great guys and great resources for Roosevelt elk hunting. Yeah, that country we, 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 we took you to, is it's a national forest, and in western Oregon, um, the national forest can be thinned, but it can't be clear-cutted. And for those of the, you that know uh, the habitat, you know, elk love clear cuts in Western Oregon because the sun can actually get to the ground. <laughs> yeah, because they can actually food. navigate through it. Yeah, so a lot of the a lot of the better elk hunting is on private timber company where they manage the 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 um I get the the forests. Um, and there's a lot of good elk hunting on national forests too. The difference is is it's really brushy and it takes a lot of time and scouting to find where the elk are there's a lot of there's a ton of country and there's not a lot of it that has elk in it at least in the area that we were hunting um so you got to find the pockets and it just takes years of of just as Corey can attest to brush busting and scratching the <laughs> heck out of yourself and dealing with all the bugs and lizards and everything else that's in the jungle there and uh our buddy uh my buddy brent and eric were were uh they, they, were, they were good they were good people to have around um they know that area really well so you know, I knew I knew we were in good hands when opening morning. Well, first off, opening morning, we got out. We went to Plan A, and we were there at three thirty a.m. And there was already two trucks there parked at the road, so we had to turn around and and go to Plan B, and got there. It was probably about four thirty. And fortunately, uh, Brent had another buddy that was in the area that went and saved the area for us. Went and drove there at three forty-five in the morning and saved a parking spot basically for us and we got out and hiked and we didn't hike 10 minutes and we were there was a branch antlered bull down below us right you know it wasn't even daylight wasn't shooting light but we could see him through the binoculars 100 yards below us and we walked another i don't even think it was a half a mile and got on the ridge and let out a couple cow calls and some cows started going crazy below us and a bull started bugling and this was august 25th in uh in roosevelt elk country and so we were immediately on elk and to see the low density of elk that we were hunting as the week progressed and to realize how valuable it is to know that area and to know those pockets it was we would have definitely been wandering around without <laughs> much hunting action on our own and it's, it's it's frustrating wandering through that country as you learned yeah, it's more like crawling and <laughs> scrambling, and it's not really wandering. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. There'll be, you know, 
six elk in a pocket and then you got to go another mile through a whole bunch of really bad stuff and then there's another eight elk or ten or whatever uh but and you know you're usually not the only person that knows about these you know let's just call it 10 to 15 spots within an area so you're always juggling people i mean it's public land hunting right it's yep. no different than anywhere else except you know the, the density of the elk is is low and they're they tend to be a little shyer um, I don't know what, Corey, I'd love to know what you thought. You know, you were out there August 25th through the 1st, I think, is the week that you were there. Yep. And, uh, which is early, obviously, but in Roosevelt country, from my experience, they still, you can still call them in, they still bugle, and they're still kind of ruddy. They're just, just kind of then starting to get with the cows and there's still bulls that aren't with cows yet but you can still get them going i'm interested that what was you know the, the golden question with roosevelt is do they talk and uh, i'd love to see what you what you think after being being there for a week yeah and it's you know i, I certainly am not an expert by any means at this point um and we we sampled that early season part of it uh, but i came away from it basically Roosevelt's and Rocky Mountain elk are the same elk. I mean, they really, as far as vocalization, as far as tactics for calling them in, the thing that is completely different is the terrain and the effects that the geography has on the elk, both in terms of where they live, how they move and all of that, but also weather, thermals, all of that's completely different. You have to really adapt to that. But as far as, yeah, I mean, they bugled uh, August. We heard a bugle every day we were there. Um, some of the days it was literally just a bugle, but we did hear an elk vocalize every day. Um, you know, I, I'd went into it and my dream for a Roosevelt hunt was hunting the old growth timber, just the dark black timber open with green ferns. And, you know, I'd always said, I just, I want that experience like from Jurassic Park where you have this old growth black timber with green ferns and fog coming up and this mist and this elk just materializes, this white body materializes and these red and black antlers come, you know, come through it. And I got that. And it was, uh, it was an epic day in Roosevelt elk country. And I'm not going to spoil the, the outcome there, but we are launching Destination Elk, which is a day-by-day -day video series uh, on the Elk 101 YouTube channel on November 12th. And I think that was day... That had been day five, four, four or day five, four. somewhere in there. Yeah. So pretty, pretty early in the series, you're going to see my, uh, my dream situation for a Roosevelt hunt come to fruition. So... Um, we, we hunted that, there was a lot of that, but we also got to experience the absolute, I don't even know how to explain the density of the brush there. <laughs> Basically, I told Corey that there was a trail that went up to the top of this mountain, and I swore to him there was. The problem was, I, I forgot to remember that I hadn't been up that trail in 11 years, and um, when he got back off the hill, he said, there's no trail. I'm like, yeah, there's a trail. He's like, there's no trail. I just got done crawling on my belly. The, uh, and his the growth hands. rate of brush <laughs> in that country is definitely faster than 11 years because there was no, not a, he didn't tell us there was a trail. You told us there was a road. Oh, that's right. I did yeah. tell you there was a road. There is a road there somewhere. You might have to get all the way on the ground and on your belly and <laughs> yeah, we were there. I didn't, I still didn't see the road. <laughs> it was unbelievably uh, frustrating to try to navigate through that. You know, we had a, 
an elk bugling and we could hear it from where we were and we had a decision to make whether to go back the way we had come, which actually would have been really easy or to go straight to the elk. And we opted to go straight to the elk and we had about 50 minutes of shooting light and we made it to the elk with after 45 minutes of just absolute brush beating. And, and I've, I grew up in North Idaho. I know what brush is like, and this is brush that you can't even explain. <laughs> uh, and that bull's yeah he, he likes the brush <laughs> they're, they're safe we called him into eight yards and we didn't yes, even did. and we didn't even see the brush move between us and him that's how thick it was we couldn't <laughs> couldn't see Could you him even see a piece of the elk we didn't no there was no piece of the elk there was the brush is so thick he was moving through that thick brush and i could hear him it's not like he's going to step on us any second and we still couldn't even see the brush moving that's how thick <laughs> oh, it was yeah yeah but that's uh that's all part of the experience a lot of close shooting over there where we were yeah and um that was a fun it was a really fun week it was it was uh not as fun as i had hoped for because we didn't get to hunt with you for as many days as we had anticipated <laughs> and, yeah uh, i tapped out didn't i <laughs> Yeah, let's let's talk about that. So day day two, you showed up that that evening, and I don't remember. Oh, we went for that short hike up through that phenomenal old growth stuff up above oh, camp. That that was the night I felt like we all dove in a swimming pool in all of our Sitka gear. Yeah, and and we got an yeah, I won't spoil it, but we got an answer way down in one of those holes that Corey was just describing. I've never even in that country, I've never been in blowdown like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we were all soaking, soaking, sobbing. There was, there's no gear on the planet that could have kept you dry in that weather. Um, nope. It was like a heavy, heavy uh, drizzle. And when it does that, there all the leaves collect like a quarter inch of rain, and you just, you're wading through salmon berries, and you just get drenched. Yep. And we did that. We were drenched for probably two hours, but Donnie had to hear that bugle down that hole, and we we dove in there all the way until yeah, until after dark. But that was that was the first evening. I'm still convinced he didn't hear a bugle, but I gave him the benefit of the doubt. We went after it. I, I certainly didn't hear it, but <laughs> I, I I never claimed to be, you know, to have the best ears. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the first evening. The next uh, the next day, um, what did we do the next day? I've got it all um, written down here. I kept a journal. Oh, all season. we went. We dove. We dove down into um, that hole by camp. Oh, that's right. Didn't, made didn't that get into loop. much that morning. Yep. I don't think. We didn't have much happen. We were, there was a, a little bit of fresh elk sign and stuff. But we couldn't get anything to talk that I recall. Yep. And then the next night. And then night, we went back over to, to the area you went opening day. Yeah. And had uh, the elk shot out from under us. We were actually calling a bull in. And uh, he was screaming his head off. And then all of a sudden it got kind of quiet. And I said, I hear voices. And everybody's looking at me saying, no, it's, it's the elk. The elk are still coming. I'm like, no, the, I hear human voices, like a girl's voice. And uh, sure enough, we pop over the ridge and there's a hunter and his wife there that had shot the elk, intercepted it as it was coming towards us. And so we got to look at a nice Roosevelt bull laying on the ground and hike out in the dark that night. <laughs> that was a little deflating, but I was happy for whoever got it. It's public yeah. land. Yeah. Totally. But yeah, we, that thing, we were in that thing for quite a while that evening. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were in elk for sure. 
And then so the, the next, next the next day we went kind of back to that same area and we went to the top and our our plan was to drop off the top and I don't I mean I'm used to hunting at 8,000 9,000 feet and when I say drop off you go into you know 6,500 7,000 it's huge elevation and over there you don't have as much elevation but for where we hunted and what I saw it was a pretty steep and and big mountain we were on dropping off of it. I just think when you add brush and st- or the, the the density, although that area is not terrible, but yeah, you drop you you, you probably lose what like five hundred feet or something. It's I was gonna say bad. I thought it, I thought it was eight hundred down to where we ended up. Yeah, it could it could have been it could have been. Yeah, it was steep. It was a it was a good decline, and we had some... we didn't have much going on there. Oh no, we jumped a couple elk right off the bat. Yep. Um, that we think were cows, and then. Yeah, we were just working our way down that mountain in that drainage trying to find something that wanted to talk. We weren't too far from where that bull got shot um, in between us the night before, maybe a half mile or something, but there's a lot of elk spread out in that area. So we were kind of just, we were actually going to what? We were going to roam pretty much that whole day. It's a huge basin and just kind of keep going until we found something that wanted to talk. Yeah. And so, and, and then we found ourselves eating huckleberries. I think I remember. <laughs> I, I remember some really good huckleberry patches on that hillside. <laughs> and and these aren't. I'm in Idaho, and so I'm used to normal huckleberries that grow. You know, the bushes are about belly button high, and you can sit down and you pick these loaded huckleberries on it. We got over there. I couldn't reach some of the huckleberries above my head. The brush was literally nine, ten feet tall, with these huckleberries hanging down off of it, tempting us from above. And so as we're yeah. walking down this steep hill, we got into some really good huckleberry patches, and we, we definitely partook. Really good in a lot of ways and not so good in some other ways. Well, hard to navigate through. <laughs> and uh, as, we, as we were walking down the hill, you know, I think we were, we were totally into hunt mode. We were just getting to that basin, and things were going to get good. We had good thermals. We had, I mean, we were, we were full-on hunt mode. And uh, I'll share my my version yeah, of ahead. the event just up to when it happened. Then I'll then I'll let you share. But we're we're kind of ahead of David, and David's doing some Instagram live, and so he's just you know as we'd stop and bugle, he'd share that, and and we got I don't know we were thirty or forty yards ahead of you maybe, and there was Donnie and myself, and then uh, our camera guy John. And then David was was lagging back a little bit. And so we're getting down. We're totally stealth mode. We're getting ready to drop down on this bench. And all of a sudden from back behind me, I hear, hey, guys. And you have to understand we're, we're elk hunting. And so to hear somebody yell out, hey, guys, it's kind of, I, I'm like, hold on. David Brinker knows we're elk hunting. He knows that you don't just yell or elk hunting. Does he not have a, an elk call? That he couldn't cow call to us and get our attention. I mean, you don't just yell out. He's going to scare all the elk off. And uh, so that, that kind of set up the uh, the situation that that followed there. So go ahead and share kind of leading up to that. I think you cow called at me once. Oh, I did. When you said, hey, guys, I cow called back because I'm like, you don't <laughs> need to yell. Let's, let's communicate with a cow call here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we, we were eating in those huckleberries and just kind of. We were just kind of getting in the rhythm of the day, I think. It was probably 8 o'clock in the morning or 7.45 or something, you know. We weren't, we didn't have much going on. In fact, I think we had also ran out of fresh sign. So we were kind of just, like I said, roaming and just kind of trolling. Yep. (laughs) And getting into some country that potentially probably hasn't been hunted that season because most people don't go all the way down there. 
Um, yeah, we were in a hole for where, where we, what we saw on the train we saw, we were in a hole and it was, yeah, that's about as big as it gets over there. Um, and you know, uh, I am constantly taking pictures and filming and stuff. A for myself, I, I like looking through them the rest of the year. <laughs> and B for my social media because I, I post on social media just like everybody else in this <laughs> industry. And uh, I, f- for some reason that morning, I, I've rarely ever done Instagram live. I think I've probably only done it like two or three times. I'm like, we were just walking down the mountain. I had full service, and I'm like, oh, this would be a good time just to try it. Heck, I don't even know how many people sign on five. I don't know. Um, and so I turned it on, and I was just walking through the brush and pointing my phone ahead of me. And you're going through these big huckleberry uh, patches. And so you're kind of having to, and the ferns are also above waist high. Yeah. So I was like filming and pushing the huckleberry limbs with my, let's see, if with with my filming hand, like I was, like I was with, with, the, with the hand that was in my phone. And then I had my, uh, my, my bow in my left hand. Um, so I was just kind of wading through brush and filming and people were getting a kick that kick out of that. I was just showing them how brushy it was. I think there was probably only a couple, 10 people signed on or something, (laughs) you know, uh, but I was just trying it out and, uh, you know, I'm going through these ferns and all of a sudden I get a really, really sharp pain in my leg and I look down and one of my arrows pops out of my leg and I immediately knew it had, it had jerked out of my quiver in the brush and um i had basically stepped into it with my calf and it went so i immediately just i knew kind of the drill just instincts i I just dropped everything and the blood was already drenching my i had core bottoms on and my scent pants um and the blood was already drenching all the way through my core bottoms and my scent pants and um so I, I I put both thumbs on it as hard as I could and just tried to stop the bleeding, which I sort of did, but it was still kind of coming from under my thumbs. But I, <laughs> I just held it as hard as I could. And that's when I yelled, hey, guys, <laughs> got a problem. Yeah, so, so he yelled out, hey, guys, and I cow called back, hoping to convince him to communicate with elk language so we didn't scare all the elk off in the area. And he responded, guys, I cut myself pretty bad. And so, I, you know, you're stopped there 30, 40 yards ahead of him, and I hear that, and we're in hunt mode, and I think, all right, he cut himself, he, you know, did he scratch his arm on some brush, or did he fall down and, and hit a stob and cut his hand or something? And so we kind of stopped there for a minute and turned around, and we're slowly, you know, just making our way back up there, thinking, all right, we'll get up there, and he's probably just stopping, putting a Band-Aid on or something. And uh, all of a sudden he says, guys, seriously, I cut myself, it's, it's pretty bad, can you, can you come up here? And so we started picking up the pace a little bit. And in my mind, you know, it's still the, the whole trying to process, okay, what could possibly be going on here? And then, uh, then he yells out and says, please hurry. It's bad. And then, you know, then it starts going into, okay, we're talking broadhead. We're talking knife. Something's happened here. And I'm not a, I'm not a first responder. I'm not trained much beyond basic first aid, you know, boy scout type first aid. And uh, as we're going up there, all these thoughts are going through my mind. It's like, you've got to pull yourself together here. This might be a really serious situation. And when we walked up, I don't think any of us were 
even as with all the scenarios going through our mind, was prepared for the amount of blood that was there. And it, I mean, it looked like we had shot an elk and the elk had died right there. And there was blood on the ground. There was blood on the leaves. Your pant from the knee all the way down inside your boot was soaked. You know, you mentioned you had your base layer in your pants. You also had a, a gaiters on, if I remember right. Oh, you're right. I forgot about that. I had Thunderhead gaiters on. Too. Yeah. yeah. So it went through all three things pretty and, quickly. And still buried. And we're talking, what? which broadhead was it you were shooting? I shoot the Valkyrie Jagger. It's a... 200 grain three blade broadhead and it went all the way in past the ferrule yeah and i'm so it's like a two inch long broadhead it's not a short little steep angle broadhead it's it's a long one so we we got there and you know obviously he's laying on the ground um, back up against a tree he's got two hands holding his leg and he said i i stepped on the broadhead it's stuck in my leg it's laying here somewhere so we found it put it up in a tree where it was secure and uh, just kind of went into, you know, I, I wouldn't say automatic, but having not been trained for that, having not experienced that kind of a situation before, um, we kind of, you know, the, the cool thing was afterwards looking back, John, the cameraman, kept the camera going. As we walked up there and, you know, started into all this, he filmed the whole thing. So we've got a, a really cool film to share from that day and, and a, obviously a blood trail that wasn't the kind of blood trail we were looking for. But, um, yeah, the maybe, only thing, I, I don't really remember how it came out. I think it fell out. I don't think I pulled it out. Um, and then once you guys got up there, I remember, because all I wanted to know, because if, if I would have hit an artery, um, it would have been a pretty rough situation because we weren't anywhere near the road. We were, you know quite a ways and you know from from just my initial analysis of getting a helicopter in there was pretty pretty low odds yeah Um, so i was like i I think i remember asking do you you think i hit an artery well that's that's, i was still holding gotta keep in mind i was still holding it as hard as i could with both thumbs yeah so so hard that like i felt like i could barely move my thumbs after i took them off a little bit later like i was just trying to keep it from stop stopping bleeding and uh because i still i still wasn't sure i hadn't because as, as soon as I saw the arrow come out, I put my thumbs on it. So I didn't know if it was... I, I've hit arteries on animals. I've seen how fast you bleed out. It's yeah. not good. And so I was I, I was just... I, I would say, and Corey, you can tell me if I'm crazy, but I, I would say I was actually pretty calm. I just wanted to know that, like, it was comforting to have those guys there. And I, I asked Corey, like, do you think I hit an artery? Because if, if I did, like, there were some things I wanted to do. Yeah. A... Like we were going to probably have a different protocol, <laughs> like call, just call 911 and try to get them in here. And B, I knew I'd probably passed out. And then C, I, I wanted to call my family because I didn't know if I was going to die. I mean, I know that sounds dramatic, but if, if you've ever hit an animal in an artery, like the aortic artery or the femoral artery or any of the arteries, it's quicker than a lung k- shot. Oh, absolutely. It's really bad. Um, and there was and enough blood you have there. A couple, you have, you have, you have um, a couple major arteries in your leg. I didn't know um, until after I went with the hospital exactly what's in your calf, um, but I knew that it was. Anyway, so my I once Corey kind of comforted me and said, "No, I don't think so. It seems like it's you know we would we would know that by." I can't remember exactly what you said. No, and when I walked up, you said, "How bad is it?" And I said, "You know," and in my mind, I'm I'm just thinking, "Okay, I've got to stay calm, and I've got to keep you calm." And so as I walked up there, you know, you you said. 
is it bad? And I said, oh, it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah, but you're going to be fine. And I remember saying, you're going to be fine and thinking, I don't know that for sure, but I don't need him freaking out right now. So I'm going to tell him he's going to be fine. But deep down inside, in, in my mind, I don't yeah. know that. I'm not convinced of that yet. Yeah. And uh, so we kind of, you know, we, we dropped down. Um, I think I kind of took charge more out of just, okay, we've got to be very systematic about this. We have to get the bleeding stopped. We have to get pressure on it. And uh, we all kind of opened our bags. And I just reached in, grabbed my game bags, grabbed my my knife and started yeah. stripping the game bag into uh, basically gauze. And uh, so we wrapped, we, we made a compression, basically gauze with, uh, with a strip of the game bag. And we put that on the wound. And so I gave it to Donnie and I told David, lift your thumbs and we've got to get this on it quick. So he did. We put the compression on there and then we wrapped it with uh, another strip of game bag. And before we really thought through it all, I think we wrapped some electrical tape around the center of that. And you have to remember, this is on the calf. So it's going from a big muscle and then it's getting narrower as the calf goes down. And as soon as we wrapped it with that electrical tape, we, uh, I don't remember if we let go or what happened, but the whole thing, the compression, the, the bandage, everything slid down the leg and basically exposed the wound again. And so Donnie at that point took his thumbs and put on the wound and held it on there. And, you know, to hear him tell the story, he could feel the blood pushing up on his thumbs, trying to, to squirt up out of there. And anytime that we did relieve that pressure, lose that pressure, blood didn't just trickle out. It was, it was full on squirts of blood. So, you know, like David said, we weren't sure that we weren't in a main artery there. Yeah. And, uh, there was, there yeah. was a lot of blood. Yeah, I remember that being frustrating too because uh, when when the, when it slipped a little bit, because we it's not like we had a lot of materials to work with. Yeah, I mean we'll get into the learnings there, but you know, uh, game bags and electrical tape and stuff like that. Um, we we I think we had enough to do one more one more round. Yep. So we did an, another we, compression and another strip and got it on there, and that's when I said, okay, hold that there. And give me a second. And I had, uh, we had some Luco tape, which, you know, you use on your feet to prevent hot spots and blisters. And it adheres really well to skin. And so we wrapped the top of the bandage with the Luco tape and then wrapped the bottom of it and adhered it to the skin so it wouldn't slide up and down. And then we did a second layer of the, uh, the compression bandage and then, you know, another wrap around that. And then Luco taped that. And then we took the, uh, I think then we used some Gorilla Tape and stripped it so it was a little bit smaller strips and kind of secured everything, make sure it wasn't moving. But even at that point, we were still holding the thumb on the, on the side of the wound over the compression bandages and knew we had to keep pressure on it. And I think that was probably the most innovative thing we did was, was how we kept the pressure on the wound there. I, I, I disagree. I think the most innovative thing you did was the lighter. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's the, to put the pressure on the wound. Oh, 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 yeah. oh, oh. Yeah, yep. yeah. No, absolutely. And I, um, I, for some weird reason, like we didn't have cell service all week, but for some reason we had cell service right there. And I was able to FaceTime with a friend of mine, um, Tom Van Ash, uh, a bow hunting buddy of mine who also is a, retired emergency room surgeon and um show him the 
the job that Corey and Donnie um, did. And man, he was impressed over the face. It was, it was pretty cool. He's like, man, you guys did a good job with what you had. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was pretty comforting too. Cause he's like, yeah, I don't think it doesn't seem like you hit anything major. There's, there's only a couple things down there that are important, but you didn't, doesn't look like you got them. And, um, but, and even later on, obviously jumping ahead a little bit, but later on when I, when the, the doctor looked at it, he, they're like, wow, that was really, that was really inventive to put a lighter there on the pressure point. Um, I'm like, yeah, it wasn't my idea, but <laughs> my buddies did it. <laughs> so we basically just took a, a lighter and put it right on top of the, the wound site. And then Donnie had a compre- or an extension strap on his backpack. We took it off, so it had a male end and a female end. And we put it around the lighter and then basically cinched it like a tourniquet. Not, we didn't use it as a tourniquet and cinch it tight, but it put that pressure on the lighter and with that lighter being raised surface like that, it pushed down onto the wound and basically held those compressions and that gauze in place on the on the side of the wound to keep it from, well, they add pressure and, and stop the bleeding. And then we wrapped everything up with electrical tape and with Gorilla Tape. And it, I mean, it looked like a, a farmer had done the job, but um, the cool thing was no more blood came through the outer layer. So we knew after a couple minutes that we'd stopped the bleeding, at least slowed it down to the point we weren't concerned with blacking out or passing out or loss of life. Yeah, and at that point, it's probably been a half hour at that point. And I've been with a buddy last year who almost passed out. He cut himself really bad taking care of an elk. And he almost passed out immediately. And I'd made it that long. So I kind of was, you know how you kind of, you get in your own head a little bit. It's like, man, am I dizzy? Am I kind of like, am I saying weird stuff? But after, after that point, my adrenaline had kind of, subsided i wasn't shaking anymore you know kind of coming down i felt pretty conscious so i'm like okay now my mind was kind of going okay now what i hadn't tried to stand on it at that point we were trying to keep it elevated um and we were making some phone calls because we were quite a ways in there um and my buddy our buddy brent and eric who we mentioned earlier they know that area really well we were trying to figure out the nearest point we could get a truck um and so that was kind of the next, yeah, next a dilemma couple we, things had to, all, we had to, oh, couple before things that, to interject. my wife, what's that? I was going to say a couple things to interject. One of the phone calls you made, Yeah. You, uh, <laughs> so David, David calls his wife and says, Hey, um, just want to let you know, had a little bit of an accident here on the mountain <laughs> and I stuck a, an arrow with a broadhead in my leg and I think we've got the bleeding stopped and, you know, I just, I, I think I'm going to be okay and he started going down, you know, that road of, of creating a little bit of doubt and in a loved one's mind to get a phone call like that. And so I said, give me the phone. And I uh, grabbed the phone from him like, Rachel, hey, it's Corey. Hey, David cut himself. It's not too bad. We got all the bleeding under control. We've got it all wrapped up here. We're just going to figure out how to, the best way to get out of here. And we'll call you when we get out to the road. Just to ease her mind. Because it was kind of going that direction that she could have probably taken it as, am I going to see you again? And uh, so we got that mitigated. And then once we did get on the phone, having on X was so valuable because we can share locations. So we just put a waypoint where we were and sent that, shared that location with Brent or with Eric actually first. And he knew right where we were and he was able to say, 
there's a road down underneath you, an old skid road. You can walk it out and it'll eventually come out on the main road. And I know I can meet you at the main road. So from there, I took off, you know, walking to go out and find out exactly how bad the road was to see how far in we could get and to meet him with a vehicle to know we had a path out. And I left Donnie and John there to make sure that David stayed conscious and awake. Yeah. And we just sat there and drank water and ate snacks and kind of joked around. There's a lot of laughing. I, I'm looking forward to watching the film because I actually, I remember laughing a lot and just hanging out. And in fact, I, I, it, you know how when you, when you get hurt, you don't, you don't want to believe how bad it is. So I'm like, you guys, I can get up and walk. <laughs> like it may take me a while, but I'll get out. And they're like, no, you are not getting up. I'm like, come on, let me try. <laughs> and uh, Corey was pretty strict about it. You're like, dude, you are not, like, if that thing starts bleeding again, we are out of materials. Like, th- that would not be a good thing to do. Well, and you just have to, you have to remember where the cut is. It's literally in the center of the calf from the side, and it slid basically along the back of the leg bone there. So every step that you take is flexing that calf muscle. And it's just, you know, in my mind, it's going to tear open that wound in a heartbeat the second you put, you know, even stand up on it, put yeah. pressure on it. And so you just didn't yeah, want to take that Yeah, that was a good chance. move. In hindsight, I'm so glad that you that you talked me out of that because, shoot, I could barely walk for two weeks. I wouldn't have been able to walk. And the bleeding didn't stop for a week. Yeah. Like after, after, the, after the wound, like just with the, you know, I had to change bandages constantly. So that would not have been smart. <laughs> yep. Well, and looking back, you know, I think you enjoyed the the method that we used to get you out of there a lot more than we did. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I did enjoy that. It was. It was really. It was really nice. <laughs> yeah. Before we get to that, I'll. Uh, so I hiked out. It was, I believe, two and a half miles from where we were out to the main road, and it was downhill. wasn't too steep. It was fairly gradual. And not far below where we were, there was an old skid road. And so I hit it and started walking it. And I walked for probably a half a mile thinking, we can get a four-wheeler in here. It, it may be a closed road, but we're going to take a chance. If we have to, if we have to ride a four-wheeler on a closed road to get David out, we will. And you know, we'll deal with the consequences later if there are some. But then I got about a half mile down and the entire road was washed out. And not just a little washout. I've taken some ATVs places that weren't the safest. And this was one that made me think, if we have a winch, I may be able to get a, an ATV across it, but I'm not certain. And I walked about another quarter mile. There's another washout, and it was clear there was no way we were getting over that one. So I got out. There were, ended up being, I think, six washouts across the road. And after about an hour, Brent showed up. He left work. We'd called him. He left work because he knew the area, loaded up his ATV, showed up, and uh, he and I jumped on with a machete, which you'll find out if you hunt the coastal range over there, machete, everybody has a machete because that's how you can actually (laughs) navigate. And uh, we, we headed up the road and we made it about a mile and a quarter before we came to one of the worst washouts and we just couldn't get the four wheeler across. So there was no way... Um, just literally no physical way to, to go any farther. So we took off hiking from there. Uh, when we got in, John and Donnie had carried you down to the skid road, I believe. And you guys were, you were close. We called you and told you we're heading in to get down to the road. Yeah. 
And uh, so we got in there, met up with you, and, and I'll let you kind of walk us through the different methods we attempted to use to navigate and to pack you out. Yeah, no, Donnie and uh, and uh, John carried me, pretty much carried me down to the, it was only 40 or 50 yards, but it was really brushy, and uh, got down to the road, and just kind of laid in the road and put, elevated my leg again, because we, again, we didn't want to start bleeding, and just waited, and, you know, thankfully, pretty soon I saw Corey and Brent walking up, and Brent's a pretty big guy. He's a big, strong guy, and so is Corey. And thankfully, because <laughs> is that called fireman style? The way I had to ride out of there. Well, the the first first thing we did, I don't know what they call it, but basically, you put your arm. You know, each oh, right. of us got on each side of you. You put your arm around us and basically started limping out on your good leg. So you were hopping along with one leg, kind of you know, your bad leg tucked up behind you. And we didn't find that to be too efficient. No, it was it was wearing you out really quickly. Your leg, you weren't going to be able to hop two and a half miles um, on yeah. one leg, and it was awkward for us because it wasn't just it, we weren't walking a road. It was an old, grown-in logging road that you know was brushed in, had windfalls and and everything. So then we thought, well, let's just we'll pick you up and carry you. So we did the same concept. You had your arm around each of us one on each side and we grabbed your, you know, your thigh and lifted you up and basically started carrying you. And that was awkward because we're off balance. We're kind of pulling against each other and one of us would start stumbling and it would yank you one way. And I think yep. it was pretty uncomfortable for you. So then we got the stick. Then we found a, a green tree and broke it down. So it was about five feet long and you sat on it and put your arms around each of us again, one on each side and we lifted the stick and started carrying the stick that you were sitting on, trying to do that, and that didn't that work. That wasn't terribly efficient. Yeah. I don't know. Did we try? Were there other things in there we tried? Um, we tried just the one guy, one guy, me just putting my bad side on, just kind of limping along with him. That didn't work very well either. Yeah. And by the time we'd done these three or four different strategies, we'd only gone 75 yards or so. Yeah. <laughs> and realized we've got at least a mile, if not, you know, maybe a little farther yeah. to go. And I think it was Brent's idea. And he, him being, and he is, he's a big guy. He's a big, strong guy. And fortunately, David was the smallest out of all of us there. And Except uh, for my biceps. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm, just, I'm talking overall <laughs> mass, like weight. <laughs> and uh, Brent said... What if we just uh, do piggyback? And so for the next, I don't know what it took us, 40 minutes, maybe? We, uh, yeah, we, not too bad. 45 we, minutes. Yeah, we took turns piggybacking David down the ridge. And uh, I think the worst parts were when we'd come to those washouts where the, you know, the road literally was just washed out and we had to navigate down the steep washout and then up the yeah, other side. Yeah, that hurt. I, I remember that hurt really hurting because it's almost impossible to walk downhill without flexing your calf, yep. actually, or uphill. Even if you're, like, being held up. Like, you just, you'll hit something and it'll stretch it or whatever. Um, so that was that was pretty rough. But we got pretty lucky that that old, old logging road was down there. Oh, um, yeah. Had it not been there, it would have been a completely different situation. And it wasn't closed. It's, it was a. It's an open road. It's just brushed in. Yep. Um, so that was that was also lucky, you know, um, that there wasn't a gate on it. We wouldn't have to deal with that. But, yeah. 
it was it was really fortunate and I, it probably took i don't know what like an hour and a half or something which wasn't too bad to get me back yeah to the to the rigs and my of course i'm kind of crazy and i was already thinking about how this uh, the reality was sinking in it's like wait a minute i want to go elk hunting where are you guys going are you guys because they were getting i'm like you know you guys need to go on the evening hunt they only had a couple days left two and a half days or something and you guys get out of here i'll go to the hospital but then i'm like wait a minute i want to go with them <laughs> i'm like well i'm probably pretty screwed for that i'm not i'm not going to be able to do that yep so yeah, it was, I don't know, what were we, probably four hours from the time that it happened until we got out to the truck. Because I hiked out the two and a half miles, met Eric, waited there till Brent got there. And then Brent and I took the ATV in about a mile, mile and a half, and then hiked back into you, and then packed you out, and then put you on the ATV. And, and you actually drove the ATV by yourself, as you know, so you could put your foot yeah. up on the front rack and... Yeah, take the weight off that and keep it elevated. And then your dad had shown up and, and hiked in with Eric. So when we made it back there, you jumped in the truck with your dad, headed to the hospital, and we kind of all stood around trying to decide, man, what do we do next? We, we guess, go hunting. I guess we go hunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I walked in the... Those guys um, went hunting, which I was happy and jealous for. Um, and uh, my dad drove me to the nearest hospital and it was kind of funny. I walked in there and I don't know if this is what they're supposed to do or not because I haven't been in the emergency room that much. But I walk in there and sit down and the doctor walks up and looks at my leg and he goes, and I had it unwrapped and it was pretty gnarly, nasty. If you want to see it, it's on my Instagram. Or no, maybe it's not on my Instagram. I can't remember if I posted it or not, but maybe I will when this podcast comes out. Um, but uh, he looked at it and it was pretty bad. And he goes, so what made you think you need to come in here? And I... <laughs> I, I just, I was so tired and like just done with it. I'm just like, I don't understand the question, I guess. Like, have you seen this? I have a like, two inch deep hole in the side yeah. of my calf. Well, he didn't understand because I told him it was from an arrow, but he wasn't a bow hunter or anything. So he didn't understand. Like he was just thinking like an arrow, like, yeah. well, where's the arrow? It's not sticking in there. I'm like, no, it's a broadhead. He's like, well, what's a broadhead? Like, it's like the blade. It's, you know, I was trying to explain it. <laughs> Imagine three of your scalpels put together and jabbed into my leg two inches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Finally, uh, one of the nurses walked in and he was a, he was a bow hunter. And he's like, oh man, that had to have hurt. He, he got it immediately. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't the first time he'd seen something like that. So, um, yeah, they threw a few stitches in me and took some x-rays and stuff and made sure that, you know, they can't, when you have a puncture wound, they usually don't stitch it. Um, they usually just, cause they want it to drain and stuff. It's kind of gross. Uh, but I kind of talked them into it because I told them like, I'm going hunting. It, like as soon as I can walk, I'm going hunting. He's like, well, I better put some stitches in it so it doesn't reopen up. I'm like, yeah, that'd be a good idea. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I went out of there on a wheelchair and went home and, just waited for hunting reports from these guys. <laughs> very, very, uh, very bummed out that I had, you know, in 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 many ways or in a few ways had kind of made a stupid error, but in also a few ways learned a, learned a ton. Totally. No, and I think that's the that's the takeaway from this whole situation in the podcast is we were we were fortunate we had enough material to improvise and do what we needed to do um you know game bags a knife to cut the game bag up uh, luco tape gorilla tape 
tape, electrical tape, the lighter, the uh, the extension strap from the backpack. Those are all things that we used. And I know when I got home, I immediately grabbed a pen and I went and I wrapped, I don't know, I've probably got 30 feet of Luco tape now wrapped around that pen. I grabbed a roll of Gorilla tape and wrapped probably 30 feet of Gorilla tape around the pen. And then I grabbed some electrical tape and did the same thing. So I've got a pen that is, you know, probably an inch and a half in diameter now loaded up with tape just to be prepared. And uh, in addition to that, it was it was neat because you had mentioned, you know, only 10 people tuned into your Instagram live and there probably were a few more than that. But I think this incident probably helped blow up your Instagram page. <laughs> I think you gained yeah. some followers through, through <laughs> yeah, all of this. You, uh, yeah, people like seeing injuries for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why. And they, they also like giving advice on it. So reading through, I posted a picture of you there with blood on your pant leg and then a picture of the aftermath, you know, showing kind of the dressing that we had done there. Yeah. And I think each of those posts, you know, were 120 plus comments. And there were several suggestions in there that I never go to the woods without this, or that's why I carry this and you should look into this. And so as soon as I got back, I jumped online and started researching you know, things that would help in a, in a serious situation like that. And I know yeah. I've got three new tools in my backpack that I carry with me now from that. And I had a first aid kit, but it's band-aids and neosporin and, you know, some super glue and just minimal stuff. Yeah, no, I, I got so many messages and comments and phone calls. And it's just like, man, so much great information's out there. Where was, where, like, where was I? Yeah. Like, wh why would it, why did I not even, and, you know, at the highest level, you know, um, we can get into the details of some spe specific things that I will not do again and learned. Um, but at the highest level, what I learned was, is hunting's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of dangerous in a lot of ways. And, and I think in a lot of ways that, most of us hunters don't realize because we've done it so much and we're so confident in doing it. But the biggest thing that I learned was is something's not really stupid until it's stupid. <laughs> um, you know, and it doesn't take much time. Everything can change in like a second, whether it be, you know, poking yourself with a broadhead or cutting yourself with a knife or falling off a cliff or what, falling, you know, a horse falling on you, whatever the accident is, you know, you don't, of course you think everything that you do is so perfect and you know you know everything but I can guarantee you everybody out there that's listening right now including me I'm going to start hunting again tomorrow there's probably something I'm doing right now that's dumb that I should be thinking about differently that could be dangerous and um you know uh the the bleeding thing is just such an obvious thing you should have the right equipment to take care of bleeding and i also had a first aid kit just like everybody else i have a i have a good first aid kit too but you know if i had been by myself i don't know that i could have got to it i was laying on my backpack but i had to keep both thumbs on my wound as you remember and the the first aid kit was buried in one of my pockets of my backpack so i would have had to take my thumbs off the wound uh, get in my backpack, unzip the little first aid kit, unwrap whatever is in there, which I'm sure wasn't enough. And, um, you know, I'd probably been fine, but since then I've been talking to people that actually, you know, specifically to the bleeding problem. Um, my buddy, Adam Foss, for instance, he carries, so in his hip pocket on whatever side it is of his backpack, he has his Delorum, 
and a tourniquet right there or or and like some 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 of the main things that are in a first aid kit right right there at his disposal so if he falls when he's got 80 pounds coming out of sheep country you're not going to roll over your 80 pound pack if yeah. you have a leg that's snapped in half you know yep you're going to have to deal with it kind of right there so he 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 knows he can get help and take care of like the very basic oh he has a um quick clot the blood clotting yep and when you say um, delorum it's it's the backcountry in reach satellite messenger type thing so he can get a message out yep yep and and one of the best things that i own um and if you hunt alone and you have family and stuff that that wants to hear from you yep so so with that you know you mentioned um I guess it's important to stress we're out there for the very purpose of inflicting, you know, as a bow hunter, inflicting massive blood loss in an animal. So we have the tools to be able to kill an animal quickly through massive blood loss. And those tools, those weapons are on our person at all times. And it doesn't take, you know, a split second to turn that around and and have that become a, a weapon towards us. Um, you know, if you're rifle hunting, shotgun, whatever it is, there there's potential for those situations. So I think being prepared for that, for a bow hunter with a quiver full of six sharp arrows and a, a knife that is razor sharp to take care of the animal and you get it, you've got potentials to to cut yourself and potentially have a lot of blood loss. And you were... You know, were you an inch away from a from a pretty main artery in your leg with with the yeah, hole? Yeah, I was. I was about an inch from one of them and two inches from the other one. So at that point, you know, we're talking main artery that feeds the whole lower half of the leg. It's a, it's substantial blood loss and a lot harder to get that bleeding stopped at that point. And uh, you know, I'll I'll share what I now carry with me based on this situation. You'd mentioned quick clot and. Quick clot is it's used, it's recommended by all five branches of the military, and it comes, you can get it in a powder form, but they have it actually impregnated into gauze strips. And the, the ones I have, they're three inches by 24 inches, there's two of the strips, and it basically helps to clot blood, I think, five times faster than the body alone. So you wrap, the, you wrap that over a, a wound, and it'll help stop the bleeding five times faster. Uh, the other thing I got somebody recommended is zip stitch, and it's basically kind of like a butterfly bandage where you put it over, and it wouldn't necessarily be for this, but if you have a knife cut that's you know two inches long and it's laid open on your leg or your arm or something, you'd put this, and basically it's a, it's a butterfly bandage that goes on both sides of the cut, and then it has five little strips across it that are kind of like zip ties. And once you adhere the bandage to the skin, then you pull those zip ties and it closes that wound up. And basically mm-hmm. they say that it's more effective than stitches because there's no scarring. It yeah. seals it right up. And then the other one is a tourniquet. And, and the one that I got, it's called the SWAT T, S-W-A-T, SWAT T tourniquet. And the cool thing about it is it has little uh, circles and squares on the tourniquet itself. It's kind of an elastic material. And you can use it as a compression wrap. So we could have used it to wrap around and, and get a tight compression and still not be a tourniquet. Or you can stretch it tight enough that those shapes change into from a square to a diamond or from a circle to an oval. And at that point, you know that you've got it at the right stretch to actually apply a tourniquet if that's what's needed. 
And so those th three things, I don't think that together they weigh four ounces. So it's not like it's adding a whole bunch of bulk or a whole bunch of weight, but I feel a lot more confident in a situation like what we experienced there that immediately we can grab those, put them on and, and be confident that even if it was a little worse than what we experienced, we're still going to be okay. Yeah. And literally all three of those things are what was the most, the three most recommended things uh, in the messages that I got. And I certainly won't leave home without them. Um, and they're inexpensive. And, you, We're talking $9 no, each, it's, it's $12 nothing. And each. that was what's so dumb. And, you know, at laying in my bed afterwards, like getting on Amazon, looking at these things, it's like, man, this, this is really dumb to not have these. Yep. And I know a lot of people out there are like, man, that's, that is really dumb. I always have these, but there's a lot of people that don't. A lot. And, um, cause most people don't think they're going to get hurt. And I, you know, obviously firsthand you can, and it can happen real quick. <laughs> um, and you don't until you do. Yeah. They, you, yes, yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think the second main thing I learned, you know, if, if you're out like being distracted and you're, you're filming or taking pictures or getting on your social media or whatever, it's like, you know, it's, it's probably no different than driving or anything else. There's, there's times for it and there's times when, when you shouldn't be doing it probably. And I don't think it was terribly, I mean, I think a lot of people do what I was doing, which is just filming hunting. Oh yeah. And, um, but I'm definitely going to be a little bit more careful. It's just not worth it, you know? Um, and just be a little bit more conscious, you know, like Corey said, you're carrying around six real sharp things and, you're in a bunch of brush and it's steep and you can, I can barely, you know, in that area, you can barely see the ground. It's like, there's probably better spots to film, you know? Um, and so, but at the, at the highest level, it's just trying to be more conscious about what you're doing. We all get so excited and passionate and just gun ho and like you're blazing through the woods in the dark and all these things that we all do that's pretty routine. Um, there's, there's things that can happen and being prepared is super important and, you know, coming back to your family's a uh, uh, pretty awesome thing. Yeah, and it would something be, we all all want to do yeah, each time. You know, if 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 that would have been the worst case scenario, that would have been a pretty stupid way to go. Yep. Um, well, and I think even of, even beyond that, you know, I mean, we we talked after you know we split and you went to the hospital, and I you know we kind of said, hey, let's if we're going to use electronics, let's stop. You know, if we need to look at Onyx maps, let's not be looking at the map while we're stumbling down the trail. Yeah. Let's stop. And it's not that we were concerned about falling on a broadhead again, but it's really easy to trip or get tangled up and break a wrist or break an ankle or oh, anything. there's so, so many things that can happen. Yeah, so little precautions there. But the other thing that, that we haven't mentioned was you were shooting the microdiameter arrows. Yep. And those arrows sometimes don't fit really well in a quiver mm -hmm. and you know, a good quiver will have adjustments on it so that you can tighten it down on there. Yeah. And you have a good quiver that does that yeah. and it just hadn't been adjusted all the way. And it's something I've never, um, I've always taken for granted that my arrows just snap in place and I've never thought about them coming out. Yeah. Um, and mine were snug, but there was, there was, there was a whole nother turn or so that we could have done on those, on those screws that would have totally solved this problem. Yep. And it's just one of those things that's dumb. Um, but, you know, I just didn't, I, I'd hunted with that quiver all of last year and, you know. Never had a first, problem. It had, no. Oh, well, I did, I, in thinking back afterwards, I actually do remember one time an arrow falling out of it. Um, I thought it was my practice arrow, but I do vaguely remember an arrow falling out. But, Regardless, it doesn't matter. Um, that was also a dumb thing. And it, again, it's just, 
you know, like my dad and I were talking afterwards, it's like just taking time just to make sure your equipment's really solid. And, you know, it's like, I just get so excited to get out. Sometimes you just half-ass something or grab it and say, screw it, I'll figure it out on the run. You know, it's like, no, just take a second. The all can wait a minute. You yeah. know, tighten your damn quiver. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And it's made me more, you know, the, the quiver is there to protect us from our arrows. That's why we have a quiver. So we don't have broadheads exposed and, and that. And, yeah. you know, if, if, if they're made right, they're going to hold the arrow securely. And there's still, there's freak accidents that can happen even with it set up right. But like yeah. you mentioned, just another half turn or turn on the, on the screws would have held it in there probably tight enough to keep it from potentially even coming out during that. And so just all those little things that we overlook and take for granted, it's, it's important to stop. And another, another scenario happened about a week before that, I, buddy South Cox, you know, I, I, I could have the story screwed up, but very quickly he shot a buck. He's blood trailing the buck walking down the blood trail and stepped on his broadhead and it went through his ankle. Um, so it's not like arrows falling out of your quiver is the only way to stab totally. yourself with a broadhead. <laughs> and I shot an, uh, after you left Corey and I, I ended up killing a, a, a little bull and, uh, my broadhead, uh, went through the shoulder blade and I was sitting there trying to dig it out, you know, cause my broadheads are, they're, they're not cheap. I was trying to get it out of there and my dad walked up, he goes, just leave it. <laughs> Just, we don't need another, and I got to thinking, man, I was like sitting there digging at it and like just excited you kill a bull and all these things. It's like, man, I could just be, I could reach in here and cut my hand. Yep. Now it's like, no, just, just, just be really careful and conscious. Totally. Yep. And then, you know, I see people after a post like this or something, somebody says, I've got a scar in my thigh from a buddy who had an arrow knocked and we were slipping up the trail and an elk was bugling and you know, he had the arrow on his bow and he slipped and fell and stuck it in my leg or he turned around to look at me and cut my arm with his broad head. So, I mean, just recognizing that these are sharp objects and we've got to treat them just like a loaded gun or anything else. Well, I had a buddy um, text me afterwards and he, I don't know exactly how it happened because I haven't had the chance to talk to him about it, but um, he had shot somehow his handgun um shot himself through the hand. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you're right. It's, it shouldn't be treated any different than a gun. Yeah. yeah just, just, we have to be smart. We have to be prepared. And I think that's the, the whole point for, for this podcast and for us getting back together and discussing it is to provide a reminder to provide the, the experience and what we learned, what we could have done different, how we could have been more prepared so that hopefully if somebody else is in a situation similar to this, they're more prepared or if somebody is in a situation that could turn into this, they're, they're taking precautions and, and being more careful so it doesn't happen. And, you know, we, uh, we were fortunate. Things worked out well. We had what we needed. We learned from it. We've, we've grown from it. And hopefully from sharing it with others, we're able to maybe avoid a couple more of these incidents a year. I hope so. Awesome. I hope so. Well, David, anything else? Any uh, parting words of wisdom or? <laughs> oh man, I don't. I I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate I appreciate you and Donnie and and John so much, and all the help and Brent and Eric and everybody who helped my. You know what ended up being an accident I had from a couple stupid errors that I made, and um, but it's good to have good buddies around. I think I talked about that 
in the last podcast I did, which was one of my five tips, which I think was number three, is hunt with people that you that you care about and can have fun with and will take care of you and all those things. And so having a good buddy on the mountain with you is really valuable. And that was certainly worked out well for me. Uh, and I, I hope you can come out again, Corey, to the jungle and, and, uh, and chase those things around again. Oh, you know, I will. I'll, uh, you know, we knew we were, we were hunting early this year. There's no doubt. And, uh, we, we had some excitement, we had opportunities and I don't want to spoil the, the total outcome because it, it was exciting and, and, uh, you'll get to, you'll get to see that when Destination Elk <laughs> launches November 12th. But I will, uh, the next time I come out, it'll probably be a week or two later than what we did this year, just so I can experience the full rut and not have to maybe hunt quite as hard to solicit a bugle. Yeah. September 10th. Yeah. That's when you need to come. Awesome. Well, before we go, we, uh, we try to do, uh, highlight a conservation piece from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation just to, to share with our listeners where their money actually goes and what it goes to. And I've got one here. This is from, uh, I thought it'd be appropriate to share one that pertained to Roosevelt elk because Roosevelt elk habitat is, it's pretty, um, I don't know if if uh, unstable is the right word, but they need a certain kind of habitat. And you get some of that old growth and there's no feed in there. It's sterile on the ground. And so logging is important and and providing some of that habitat is important. So there's a, a project that they did in Washington and it uh, basically permanently protected and opened access to almost 1,500 acres of wildlife and repairing habitat in Southwest Washington. And they teamed up with, uh, with a timber company and with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife to be able to, basically there was a chunk of private land that was critical habitat for elk and it was gonna be up for auction basically. Anybody could go in and buy it and do what they wanted with it. And so they worked together and were able to uh, basically purchase that land. And uh, the, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation didn't actually purchase the land. This timber company did, but they worked with the Elk Foundation to make sure that the land stayed uh, conserved for elk. And uh, the Elk Foundation did put up some of the money uh, until they were able to be reimbursed by the timber company. And anyway, um, doing all sorts of things like this. And, and I know they've been heavily involved with some logging operations, teaming up with timber companies to go in and do some of these cuts in areas where there is no feed to be able to open it up. So you mentioned at the beginning, there's places the sun doesn't touch the ground over there. And by doing some of that logging and, and some cuts in these areas, it's able to open it up, it's able to breathe, it's able to grow actual habitat that the elk need to be able to live in these areas and, and uh, thrive in these areas. So just one of those ways that $35 that you spend a year to be a member gets put on the ground and uh, conserves, whether it protects uh, access, whether it creates habitat, all of these different areas that are so important to us as elk hunters, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is uh, actively, continually actively involved in. So awesome organization. Amazing. Just uh, encourage everybody to consider going out there and being a member. If you're an elk hunter and not a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, I'd love to hear why, because I, I can't think of a good reason not to be. Agreed. David, thanks so much. I know you're heading to uh, Montana tomorrow. I'm heading to uh, another hunt here in Idaho with uh, 
the winner from our giveaway from last year with Mountain Ops, and uh, it'll be fun to connect back up afterwards and hopefully share some stories and pictures. But good luck, be safe out there, and, and again, thanks so much for taking the time to share this experience and talk about it to hopefully educate those who are listening. Yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, and good luck. Good luck on that hunt. Absolutely. Folks, thanks so much. Visit us at elktalkpodcast.com and uh, make sure and tell your elk hunting buddies about us. Uh, any platform that you listen to podcasts on, we're on there. And uh, also we'll have all of these episodes available on YouTube. So keep following us, keep telling your friends and get out there and go elk hunting.